Welcome to the Conversions Podcast, where we discuss conversion rate optimization and the latest tips, technologies, and actionable strategies that you can actually use to get more of your website's visitors to take action. And now, your host, Francis Teo. Welcome to episode 16 of the Conversions Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, but before we get started, let's take a look at some iTunes reviews. We have a five-star review from Cage233. He says, great content on an increasingly important topic. I was so happy to find this podcast. Great interviews and insights into what I think is an essential skill for anyone who sells a product or service online. Thanks for the kind words, Cage. Please keep the feedback and reviews coming. If you would like to hear your review being read on air, please leave us a review at conversionspodcast.com forward slash review. If you would like to reach me directly, you can also leave me an email at feedback at conversionspodcast.com. Now on to today's episode. Today we have with us Roger Dooley. Roger is the author of Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing. He blogs regularly about using brain science in marketing and sales at his blog, Neuromarketing. He's also a consultant and entrepreneur who combines knowledge of emerging phenomena like neuromarketing and social networking with decades of hands-on marketing experience. He helps companies understand the implications of new technologies and techniques and guides them in the implementation of practical strategies to adapt to them. Welcome to the podcast, Roger. Well, thanks, Francis. Happy to be here. I'm really glad you're here because like, I love your blog and the stuff you've been writing. So... I'm really excited. Well, thanks so much. It's uh, great to be chatting with somebody on the other side of the world. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So could you tell us a bit more about how you got into marketing? Uh, I started my life as an engineer. Uh, my education was in chemical engineering, of all things. But even then, I had an interest in two areas that were kind of off-topic, uh, advertising and psychology. I ended up minoring in psychology and uh, maintained an interest in advertising. It was really sort of a hobby one. When I was in school in the library, supposed to be studying organic chemistry and that sort of thing, I ended up uh, sneaking over to the periodical section to read Ad Age. Uh, and then after I graduated, I started a career in engineering, and really those other areas were on hold. Uh, but over time, I sort of morphed from engineering into project management and product management. Uh, and then finally became uh, a full-time marketer when I uh, co-founded a direct marketing company, a catalog company, at the very beginning of the home computer era. Uh, and that was great because it was a scientific form of marketing. That was about as scientific as it got back then. I mean, now, of course, online, we've got so much data. We've got uh, really simple A-B testing and all that sort of thing. Uh, but even then, uh, using physical paper, we would do uh, split-run tests of different catalog covers, uh, different overwraps and messaging and so on, or uh, uh, inkjet messages on the outside of the catalog. So that was about as scientific as marketing got, and I really uh, liked it. I did that for quite a few years. Years. Uh, then, of course, that morphed into digital as the internet uh, became more commonly used for e-commerce. Uh, and uh, then finally, back in uh, 2004, I saw this confluence of uh, neuroscience and marketing. And being a digital marketing guy, I did what any good uh, web guy would do, and I registered uh, neurosciencemarketing.com, uh, which was uh, still available. Uh, and about a year later, I started blogging there. Uh, and over time, uh, I've sort of refined my approach to the field and uh, seen what people are interested in. A couple of years ago, my book Brainfluence came out. Uh, so that's uh, uh, my uh, neuromarketing career uh, in brief. Awesome. So like you're basically blending some old school direct marketing with the recent development in neuroscience and 
brain science, I would say? Well, I think uh, that having a grounding in the sort of science of direct marketing is great, uh, just a great background uh, for the more digital uh, era. And also, a lot of the people working in the neuromarketing area or uh, behavioral science area uh, tend to be academics. Uh, and I find that uh, having uh, decades of experience in really selling stuff to people uh, helps keep me grounded. Yeah, so we, you'll be able to like translate the theory into practice. A lot of what I do in my blog posts, uh, both on neuromarketing blog and at Forbes.com and in my book, Brainfluence, and in my speeches, uh, is translate academic research into practical business advice. Uh, often there's some really great lessons there, but academics are t- typically interested in publishing and getting their research findings out there and cited by other researchers and uh, just don't have the practical business experience to see what the implications of that work could be. Yeah, that's really true. And the other thing is like, I find some academic writing really dry. I love ri- reading the, the more academic stuff, but sometimes it just gets a bit dry. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's certainly true too. And there there's certainly some great work being done out there though. And I think it's uh, there are folks making great contributions to the field. And they actually were pretty engaging writers too. People like uh, uh, Dan Ariely, for example, doing some uh, great research and also uh, with books like Predictably Irrational has gotten into the uh, popular area. So it's, it's a very readable book. Awesome. So before we get into, too far into it, could you give us a quick overview of what neuromarketing is? Not everybody agrees on the definition of neuromarketing, Francis. My definition is intentionally broad. Uh, any use of our understanding of how the brain works to improve marketing. Uh, there are some folks that uh, have a more narrow definition. It's also been called consumer neuroscience Uh, And they may use it to apply to techniques like EEG measurement of brain waves while people are uh, looking at ads or other marketing materials or fMRI, a very costly technique that's mainly available only in uh, medical and university settings. But to me, some of the best insights, particularly uh, when you're trying to create advice that's actionable for people as opposed to telling them, okay, you have to do your own neuromarketing studies, comes from behavioral research. Uh, scientists that are uh, not necessarily using uh, any brain scans, but rather they're uh, seeing how people react to various uh, things and situations and then drawing conclusions about human behavior from that. How long has basically neuroscience and brain science been affecting business? Is this something new? It's, it's relatively new. The mere fact that uh, as recently as 10 years ago, uh, neurosciencemarketing.com uh, was available as a domain indicates that the field was just starting to coalesce then. People have been talking about it, but uh, really there wasn't too much going on up to that point. Uh, and then over the last 10 years, uh, it's increased uh, to the point where now it's becoming increasingly accepted as a business tool. Uh, Coca-Cola, for example, uh, recently said that they would be incorporating a neuromarketing element uh, in all of their uh, major new campaigns campaigns. Uh, In other words, uh, whenever they launch a big new ad campaign, one of the things they do will be to include some elements of a neuromarketing study. Uh, And a a key technique that they're using is facial coding, uh, where people's facial expressions can be monitored and analyzed while they're viewing, say, a commercial. Wow, this sounds really advanced. Well, it's it's getting cheaper. That's the good news is some of the original work was done using techniques like fMRI, where the the machine alone costs millions of dollars, and uh, is simply not something that is available to uh, businesses and ad agencies, or, or most businesses and ad agencies. That's for sure. But now so the tools are getting cheaper and more available, and the technology is getting better. Uh, so you have 
uh, facial coding analysis that can be done uh, in some cases uh, with a, a laptop uh, uh, camera, for example. So uh, it doesn't require a lot of special hardware. It just uh, requires uh, software. And, and that's, technology is constantly developing. EEG has gotten uh, somewhat more effective and inexpensive with uh, simpler headsets that are faster to put on and take off and so on. Yeah, that, that's really intriguing. And I believe the industry standard is still fMRI technology. Well, uh, probably the most commonly used commercial technique uh, is EEG. Uh, fMRI is sort of a gold standard, uh, and academic researchers tend to use fMRI almost exclusively compared to other techniques. But for commercial use, EEG is more common simply because of the expense and the sample size. Uh, fMRI studies often include 10 subjects or 15 subjects. Uh, which from a consumer research standpoint is really a very small number. And if, if you tell a company like Procter & Gamble that we're going to study your ad and we're going to have a sample size of 10 people, they would find that unacceptable. Yeah, that's a very important consideration. Yeah, EEG uh, is uh, much more scalable. Uh, you can have even, say, a room full of people with EEG headsets on all uh, looking at the same material. Awesome, awesome. I find it all really intriguing, but I guess I should move on from the technical geeky stuff before listeners like scream at me. So uh, so I guess something a bit more relevant, I'm taking a look at your book right now and your chapter one is like sell to 95% of your customer's brain. Um, This wasn't in the show notes, but it's interesting that I believe this is kind of controversial that like we use 95% of like so-called subconscious brain activity to make our buying decisions. Is this true? Is this a good rule to follow? We should always just market to the subconscious or unconscious brain. Yeah, I I think that the exact percentage can never be pinned down. I think there's general agreement among neuroscientists that a very large percentage uh, of our brain's activity is non-conscious. There's there's absolutely no doubt about that. And I've seen numbers thrown out. Uh, uh, A.K. Pradeep, who wrote the book, The Buying Brain, uh, used a number of something like uh, 99.99-something percent uh, of our brain processes were subconscious. So there, there's not too much controversy there. As far as the percentage used in any given buying decision, that's a number that's pretty hard to pin down. But we do know that buying decisions are often made for emotional reasons reasons and then are justified by the conscious mind after the fact. Uh, So uh, if all we're doing is uh, selling features and benefits and sort of very uh, left-brained, cognitive-oriented selling points, uh, we're really not going to succeed nearly as well as if we're hitting other hot buttons as well. And and that's that's a lot of what I write about is uh, how to understand some of those non-conscious factors and build those into your marketing as well. Yeah, I think a lot of these things can be really powerful, especially if if this, this number is true, like 95% of the decision-making or whatever number we want to use, a huge uh, proportion of a decision-making process is subconscious, unconscious, whatever term they're using. <laughs> Yeah, Francis, there's one interesting study from a few years ago that looked at uh, when people made decisions and they would give the person a choice and then ask them to push a button as soon as they had arrived at a conclusion. At the same time, uh, their brains were being scanned uh, and they found that people made their decision seven seconds on average before they were consciously aware of it. So I mean, that is one data point that goes to show that uh, not everything is uh, conscious and rational, uh, at least as much as we think 
think it is. Because certainly if you talk to people and ask them, well, why did you buy this particular product? Uh, they'll immediately uh, give you a list of very rational reasons why they did that. In fact, some of those may be true, but quite likely uh, there was a big uh, subconscious and emotional component as well. Awesome. So we should always take this into account when designing website copy or the actual website design as well. All of the above. Awesome. So how can neuromarketing or neuromarketing concepts help marketers and website owners get better results and conversions? Well, often on the web, a conversion is a very quick thing. You have a short time to engage the customer or the visitor's attention on your landing page or on your e-commerce site. Uh, and they're, you're always in danger that they're going to uh, hit the back button or do something else or simply fail to act. Perhaps they'll put something in their shopping cart and leave. So to me, the key insights that you can get from looking at brain behavior research are things that will uh, keep them engaged a little bit longer with your website, make them feel a little bit better about you as a company, and also uh, get them to feel comfortable in concluding the transaction, whether it's giving up their name and contact information in the lead generation situation or placing an order on an e-commerce site. So that's pretty, I would say, comprehensive because what you touched on is basically when you first reach the website, some people like to call it the first moment of truth. So we need to grab their attention and then we need to engage them with the brand or the copy or whatever benefits and features of your product. So it's it's really all-encompassing. Yes, yes, definitely. It, uh, it's your imagery, your copy, your headline, uh, everything. Uh, do you have any other tips that can help marketers use brain science to get better results on the site? Well, I've got uh, lots of individual tips. Uh, the uh, I think that one area that is uh, often overlooked is what psychologists call fluency, and that's the ease of the way we process information. And by making your website uh, or your landing page more fluent, uh, you'll have greater success. Uh, and that can be things like reducing the amount of copy, making it easier to read, and amazingly, even using a simpler sans serif font versus one that's a little bit fancier. Uh, there was an amazing study done a few years ago uh, that had people estimate the amount of time it would take to perform a little exercise program. And it was only two sentences long. It was uh, something like, uh, tuck your chin toward your chest and then move in a particular way and repeat uh, six uh, to eight times. Uh, and then another sentence that was rather similar to the first one. So a very, very simple exercise plan. And they asked people a question. They said, how long do you think it'll take to do these exercises? Uh, and two groups of people were asked that question. One saw the exercises described in Arial, which is a very simple font, and another saw it in a brushy font that was still very readable, uh, but it's just a little bit chunkier and a little bit harder to read, uh, and a psychologist would say less fluent. The people who saw it in the brushy font uh, estimated about 15 minutes uh, to do the exercises, where the people who saw it in Arial estimated eight minutes. So if you're asking somebody to, say, complete uh, a form uh, on your website, merely describing it uh, or asking them to do that in the wrong font is going to make it seem more difficult and more time consuming. So uh, in general, don't let your designer get carried away, particularly if you're asking people to do things. Use the simplest font possible. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I, basically when we do optimizations for websites, we take care to do that as well. We get a bit paranoid and carried away sometimes. So even to like use the correct font, so more readable font. I hate this. Is this horrible font going around, which is in like block capitals, and you use it for all over the place, and it's terrible for readability. And 
Yeah, I'd like to replace that kind of thing. And we actually go as far as to tweak the line height to make sure that it's more fluent for for lack of a better term. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, if, if it's all jammed together and hard to read, it's going to seem more difficult. And our, our one, one thing that's generally true is that our brains hate difficulty. They will always take the easy way out. So in general, as marketers, we have to cater to that tendency. Uh, if you make people think, and of course, uh, Steve Krug, Krug wrote a great book on web design, Don't Make Me Think, which illustrates exactly how that works. If people get to your website or your landing page and they have to think at some point about what to do, what you want them to do, what they're supposed to do, you will lose them. Yeah, that's an awesome book. And it's actually my to-read list thing in the second edition right now probably going to get that as well yes it's 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 a great book uh, i had a chance to see steve speak at a conversion conference and uh, chat with him a bit and uh, really it's a very it's, the advice is very simple uh you could almost read the title of the book and say okay well uh, that, that's enough i get it but he provides so many great illustrations of websites that fail to follow his advice and make people think are versus examples of really good ones where you can flow very quickly through the process without uh, having any doubts. Yep, definitely you want to make the process of browsing and purchasing from a website or whatever action you want them to take as easy as possible. So I know there are a couple of these like, I don't know, things uh, like fluency or other cognitive biases that, that might affect website conversions. Let's just go through one more if you have uh, any examples? Let's see. Well, uh, I think that uh, if a, a marketer is uh, selling to a primarily uh, male population, uh, males are influenced more than females by irrelevant factors. Uh, there was a great study done by a bank in South Africa where they sent a mailer, uh, a direct mail piece to 50,000 people. So a pretty good sample size uh, for direct marketing. And they included different elements in the offer. It was a loan offer, uh, offering to give people uh, a loan, a consumer loan. Uh, and they vary the interest rates in the, in the packages. Some had higher interest rates and some had lower interest rates. And uh, they also vary the imagery. In some cases, there was no picture. In some cases, uh, there was a picture of a a man. In other cases, there's a picture of a woman. In both cases, the people were attractive, but they were in, in a bank setting. It wasn't a like you know bikini babe or something. It was just a person who might have appeared to be a bank officer or a teller or something like that. And what they found was that the imagery had relatively little impact on the response rate of the female recipients. So they responded uh, to the interest rates and so on in a, in a fairly rational way. But for the male recipients, receiving a mailer with a picture of an attractive woman uh, provided the same lift in response or conversion, if you will, to put it in a web term, as a 4% lower interest rate. Uh, so from a bank standpoint, that's like finding free money. Uh, would you prefer to drop your interest rate by four points? Uh, or would you prefer to stick a, basically a free picture uh, in your mailer? Now, that won't work uh, in every case. And obviously, it has to be done in an appropriate fashion. The, uh, the good news is that that photo did not depress the response of uh, females. So doing something like that can even work in a situation where you're appealing to both genders. But uh, you, again, want to exercise caution. Uh, there's certainly evidence that including even, say, more revealing imagery has a bigger impact on males. But then you start to get into uh, a question of taste uh, and a question of whether it'll have a negative effect on female response. So uh, that's something that would you'd probably use only in, for specific offers that were male-oriented and where that kind of imagery would be sort of expected and, and appropriate. If you're, if you're selling shaving cream, for example, or male fragrances, you sort of expect to see imagery of attractive females. Else. That's a very interesting case study, and I think we can use that advice to 
take into account when we write website copy. Always, well, bear in mind that there are all kinds of biases when writing copy and designing websites. So I understand you have this thing called the persuasion slide, which is your model of how persuasion works. Is that right? How can this model help marketers? What I wanted to do was come up with a way of incorporating many of the different psychological theories of persuasion out there. I mean, there are a variety of totally different models. You've got famous uh, six principles from Cialdini, his authority and social proof, and et cetera, that everybody's familiar with. Uh, B.J. Fogg at Stanford uh, has developed uh, what he's called the Fogg Behavior Model and also the uh, Fogg Behavior Grid. So, uh, and there, there are certainly other theories out there, too. There's uh, Daniel Kahneman's System 1 and System 2 thinking, the sort of fast and slow uh, methods of thinking. Uh, and I, I wanted something that could bring this together uh, in a relatively straightforward way for uh, marketers uh, who are focused on persuasion. And the slide, the persuasion slide is a, a simple framework for doing that. Uh, and uh, I use the children's playground slide uh, because it incorporates uh, really several key elements in any persuasive process. And this works particularly well for a web conversion process. Uh, a persuasion process like, uh, say, selling a nuclear power reactor to a government institution uh, is, is a very complicated process that doesn't lend itself to simplicity. Uh, but when you talk about lead generation or e-commerce conversion, persuasion slide really works. And uh, here, here's how uh, we can describe it in simple terms. The uh, First of all, every slide uh, depends on gravity to work. Uh, no gravity, you don't go down the slide. Very simple. The gravity represents the customer's initial motivation. If you're selling something or if you are offering something in return for the customer providing his uh, name and email address, uh, there has to be or at least there should be some motivation on the part of the customer if you want to convert at a high rate. The If you want to sell uh, ice to Eskimos, that, that's great, but it's going to be a very fruitless task in most cases uh, if it's not something that they need or want or care about. So uh, the first thing you have to do is align your offer with gravity. Uh, and I see a, a lot of, uh, in particular, lead gen situations where their offer is not aligned at all with the customer's motivation. Uh, instead of focusing on why the customer is visiting their website. Perhaps it's a, uh, a website about uh, weight loss uh, and they're trying to get leads or newsletter subscriptions. Instead of focusing on that, they have a big call to action that's subscribe now, which is fine if the customer is really motivated to subscribe, but really they're probably more concerned about getting spammed by you. Uh, so instead of that, changing the messaging to be something like uh, look better in two weeks uh, is going to align your offer with gravity. So that, that's that's one thing. Gravity is uh, the customer's got to come in the door uh, with an interest. If the customer isn't interested in losing weight, you really don't want to uh, even focus on persuading that customer. Uh, if your business model is selling stuff uh, that people don't need to them, it's probably time for a different business model because you're, you're just going to end up failing. You're going to have unhappy customers if you do succeed. So uh, that's, that's the effect of gravity. Uh, the level of uh, motivation that you can provide the customer uh, is the slope of the slide. If the slide is insufficiently sloped, if there's not an angle there, again, the customer is not going to make it to the bottom. Uh, and so what you need to do as a marketer is to provide that motivation and get make sure that the slope is as high as uh, it or uh, as steep as it can be. Uh, and those can be conscious motivators. Those are the features and benefits that you're offering, the tangible things that the customer is going to experience uh, if he 
uh, or she buys your product or signs up for your newsletter, that can be a discount or a sale. Uh, the, these are all conscious motivators. Uh, if it's 50% off, then uh, that's that's a conscious motivator. The customer is going to save money on the offer if he buys now. Uh, it, but also part of that motivation and the slope of the slide are the non-conscious motivators. And there are literally hundreds of these. These are uh, the things that you'd find, say, in Cialdini's six principles. So if you're describing your offer to the customer, sure, you're going to talk about your key features and benefits, how the customer is going to be better off from buying your product. But you're going to include elements like social proof, uh, perhaps uh, testimonial from successful customers. You may include uh, an authority appeal, which would be uh, invoking perhaps an expert in your field who is endorsing your product or your process and so on. Uh, And there are literally hundreds of non-conscious motivators that you can employ. Uh, And these all go into determining the slope of the slide. And then what is constantly fighting you on any slide uh, is friction. You've all seen a slide where uh, the child starts off at the top and gets stuck halfway down uh, because the slide isn't slippery enough. Uh, Perhaps it's rusty or poorly maintained. Uh, And friction is your enemy. Uh, And Francis, a little while ago, we talked about fluency uh, uh, on websites and things like using the wrong font size and so on. That's an example of friction. Uh, Any kind of disfluency in the website, uh, customer confusion, Uh, if you have things that are described poorly that are hard to read, uh, that's friction. A lot of steps in the process is friction. If you can complete the transaction in two clicks, uh, you're going to have much less friction uh, than if you can complete it in four or five clicks. Uh, If you have a form that requires a customer to fill in uh, one or two blanks, you're going to have much less friction than if you hit the customer with a form uh, that requires them to fill in 15 blanks. Uh, And obviously, a podcast isn't a real visual medium, but uh, in my speeches, I always have some great examples of uh, contrasting forms that have the same objective, uh, but in some cases, uh, have a lot more friction than others. So you have to look at your landing page or look at your website and identify those elements that could be friction uh, and eliminate them. And in fact, if you look at each element on the landing page or on the website, you should be able to categorize it uh, into one of two categories. Either this is some kind of motivation uh, that you're providing the customer. Uh, It's a feature or a benefit or a non-conscious motivator, or it's friction. It's something that is getting in the way of conversion. And if you've got a lot of stuff on there that sort of falls into this, well, it's there because it looks good or because somebody said it had to be there, uh, you want to get rid of that. You want to uh, eliminate friction uh, and eliminate the stuff that uh, you can't really classify because that's friction too. Uh, it's got to be motivation or it should be there. Uh, and then a final element of the slide uh, is the nudge. If a child's sitting at the top of the slide or if you're sitting at the top of the slide, you need to uh, have a push. Uh, either somebody's going to propel you or if it's you, you're going to use your arms to give yourself a little push at the top to start moving down the slide. And that means, in the case of websites, uh, having a very visible call to action. It could be a prominent ad. If you look at websites that are very oriented to developing subscriptions, they will have their call to action above the fold, perhaps occupying half the page. You simply can't miss it. If you look at uh, websites with poor nudges at the top or poor pushes, uh, there are things that have like a little tiny uh, envelope icon that nobody is going to see unless they're actually looking for it. There's no nudge in that case at all. 
Uh, so what you want is a visible nudge, that, something that many websites use, particularly subscription-based uh, sites or lead gen sites, is uh, they'll use an overlay pop-up uh, where uh, if a, a visitor has been on the site for a brief period of time, they'll hit them with a pop-up that has a very simple call to action, has some motivation there of how it's going to uh, benefit the visitor, perhaps some non-conscious motivators like uh, 200,000 subscribers uh, showing social proof. That is a visible nudge that nobody's going to miss. Now, some people may find those annoying, and there are some websites that say, no, we'll never do any kind of a pop-up. Uh, but those websites that uh, employ those as a nudge do get more subscriptions. They probably annoy more people, too, and that's a call that every website owner has to make. But uh, somehow you need that visible nudge. And what I've seen is the websites that forego the, say, pop-up approach or something that's um, you know, a fly-in from the side or something that's rather annoying and animated, uh, in those cases, the uh, sites that are successful have a very visible call to action. It may be static. It may not uh, pop up in front of the uh, visitor's face. But if they go to uh, either the home page or perhaps uh, a landing page or they land on a content page from a search engine, uh, there's going to be a very, very visible call to action there that represents the nudge to get that visitor moving down the slide. So that's it. Uh, the uh, four elements, you've got uh, gravity, that's the visitor's initial motivation. You've got the slope, that is the motivation that you provide, either conscious or non-conscious. You've got friction, that's everything that's getting in the way of that conversion happening. And then finally, you've got that nudge uh, to be sure that you've gotten customer's attention or the visitor's attention. Um, well, that's a that's an awesome model. I'm going to link it to link to your website, uh, your blog, where we have this post on the persuasion slide so that listeners can just go and take a look at it. And it's a really interesting model where you encompass a lot of factors when as part of the conversion process. So one problem I find when using this kind of approach, whatever framework we're using, is the non-conscious motivators. There are like way too many of them. How do you consider at least a good proportion of the important ones? Well, uh, what I uh, typically would do is employ a process where uh, you start with a sort of big list of possible uh, motivators, uh, non-conscious motivators or, or Things that can get in the way. If you have, if you're selling a product, for example, you have to display the price, or you most likely have to display the price, uh, and that brings in a whole set of uh, non-conscious factors that you can consider. Whether it's setting a higher anchor price in some manner, uh, even the way that you print the price. Uh, do you have a currency symbol? Do you have decimals after the price? Uh, is it uh, a round number like 300 or, or is it 299.95? All of these factors uh, uh, can come into play just in one simple aspect of pricing. And, and then obviously there's imagery. What kind of imagery are you including? Uh, so you start with a sort of big checklist of possibilities. Do you have social proof available? Do you have authority available? You know, if you've got an endorsement uh, uh, from an extremely trusted authority, uh, that's something that you want to focus on perhaps uh, more than uh, the fact that you've uh, had 2,000 customers for this product already. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, maybe uh, you've had uh, tremendous success in the marketplace and social proof is your key factor. Or, you know, there, there are just uh, so many things that you can focus on. Uh, you don't want to overdo it. Uh, I did see one test that showed that sometimes including one element, a key element of social proof, was more effective uh, than trying to jam too many in there all at once. 
Uh, so you might want to exercise some caution too. And I think that might in some cases be a fluency effect uh, where if you're trying to give too much information to the visitor, uh, even if it's good information, and even if uh, they are positive cues, uh, sometimes you can overdo it and it ends up uh, slowing them down and turning them off. Yeah, I find it really interesting what you mentioned because, well, we are a testing agency. We always, uh, I run a testing agency or conversion rate optimization agency, and we always test the changes because one thing I found is like we have all this theory about certain what you call non conscious motivators, but you, the, Interactions between the different motivators or even, like you mentioned, overdoing it can actually backfire on you? Definitely. And, and you know, one thing that's true about conversion, uh, I, I speak to a lot of conversion experts and go to conversion conferences. Uh, uh, and it's always interesting when a uh, speaker puts up a slide of, okay, here uh, it was our A-B test. And, uh, you know, we tried this approach and then uh, that approach which do you think worked best? And often an entire room full of conversion experts will choose the one that did not perform as well as the other one. Uh, and so uh, you're, you're raising a really good point, Francis. Uh, testing is really, really important. The uh, You can employ, uh, you know, sort of the best practices, the smartest techniques, really cool subconscious approaches and all these things. But if you don't test, you risk failing. Uh, it's um, obviously you want to come up with hypotheses based on non-conscious cues and based on best practices and uh, try them out. But you can't just assume that because they worked on another website or because uh, we know this is how people think in most circumstances that it's going to work for you on your website the same way. I somehow find a way to mention this point in every episode and I don't like uh, cue the guests or anything. It, every single guest will say this. Like it, it depends on the context. It depends. We have to test it. Kind of interesting. Right. Well, when, when you see how frequently conversion experts fail at predicting uh, what's going to work, uh, you can uh, understand why testing is so important. And uh, mentioning uh, Steve Krug again, too, uh, he's got his uh, book, uh, uh, rocket surgery out that's all about uh, usability testing. And that, uh, that's a little bit distinct from the A-B testing uh, and other kinds of testing that conversion experts use. Uh, but uh, he also shows how usability testing can be done in a very simple, cost-effective fashion. So often companies overthink the usability aspects. They'll uh, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on website design and coding and so on, and they'll put it in front of uh, big panels of users and then try and optimize it from there. Uh, he makes the point that usability testing can be so simple. Uh, just putting up uh, a uh, sort of a mock-up or a, a very simple website version in front of three people without a lot of fancy equipment and testing uh, can give you really important cues about the usability of your site uh, and identify the things uh, that are blockers and identify them before they're hard-coded in because that's that's the problem. All too often, uh, you complete the website development and then say, oh, yeah, okay, now we got to do the usability testing uh, when at that point, uh, it's either impossible or at least very, very expensive to change. Uh, so uh, usability testing uh, uh, is important along with the conversion type testing, you know, A-B testing using tools like Optimizely and so on. Yeah, we do some usability testing when we do A-B tests, uh, when, before we start A-B tests as well, just to get some insight into the usability of the site. And it's, it's really interesting how you brought out a point about having doing this for new sites, because recently there are a couple of potential clients that come to us and we have, basically they have new websites. And I was like, well, it's almost 
nearly ready and at this point when if we run a usability test and you find out that your site is not usable then what then we have to redo the whole thing and that costs money costs time and it's just not a good way to go if you have already developed the site and really launched like in two weeks time so what you mentioned about just doing the usability testing on the wireframe that's a great approach if you're about to launch a new website and a lot of potential well, people who who have a potential new design they don't they don't do any of this even stuff like card sorting which is a well-known usability concept it's not well known and a lot of designers they don't do that unless they have a usability or ux kind of experience right yeah it's it's definitely important it's often overlooked uh, as a key element of conversion so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you focus on those usability issues too because uh, uh, if there's any uh, major blocker for conversion it's poor usability which in my slide model represents friction uh, any aspect of poor usability is friction that absolutely gets in the way of a successful conversion awesome awesome so let's just wrap up and if you have just one top actionable tip for using neural marketing concepts to help marketers and website owners get more results, get more conversions on the site, what would that be? Hmm. Uh, I don't know that I've got a single tip uh, because there are so many different approaches. I think the uh, if, if I had to consolidate it into one tip, uh, it would be to read a lot on the topic and see which approaches are going to work for you. In uh, Just in uh, my book, Brainfluence, uh, there are a hundred different concepts and little short chapters there, but there are some other great books. Uh, Cialdini's uh, Influence psychology persuasion uh, is a classic. It's uh, it's many years old and it is not specifically about web conversion. I mean, I don't even know if it mentions uh, websites in the latest edition, but uh, it is all about uh, the psychology of persuasion. So that's uh, that's a great reference. There are other good books on uh, conversion. Uh, folks uh, like Tim Ash and Chris Goward and Brian Massey all incorporate elements of psychology into their books on conversion. Uh, so uh, rather than looking for a single magic bullet, uh, it's really good to get familiar with uh, many of the options that are out there and then choose the right tool for each task. That's great advice. I'm not sure how practical in a sense that I do that all the time. I'm always learning and they're like... 20 books on my reading list relating to different like marketing and psychology concepts. And I find that the more you learn, the more you know that the more you feel that you don't know anything. Well, that's uh, that's true in a way. But on the other hand, uh, I think if you read a book that has uh, potentially uh, dozens and dozens of ideas in it, uh, if you can come away with one key takeaway from that book, say, wow, this this applies to my situation and actually use it, then uh, first of all, you've more than paid for the book, but uh, uh, also you have justified the time you spent reading it because obviously the time you invest in reading a book is worth a lot more than the, uh, uh, the price. Yep, definitely. That's why I'm still reading and trying to digest as much information as I can. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a lot like a, a conference. Uh, people come away. I, I've seen people attend conferences uh, where they'll come away with a notebook full of notes they took where every speaker, they're scribbling down ideas and, uh, you know, the speaker talks for 20 minutes and they've got uh, two pages of notes on that. And to me, that is the wrong approach. Uh, if you can 
uh, jot down uh, from each speaker a key idea or two. And then at the end of the conference, I'll go back and I'll look at those key ideas and then pick just two or three of those to actually act on in your business. Try them out. Be sure to uh, not just file that away, uh, put that notebook on a shelf, but uh, put at least one or two of those ideas into practice. That will justify the conference far more uh, than pages and pages of uh, notes that you'll never look at again. Yeah, that's a really good point because that's what I, exactly what I do when I go for conferences. I don't jot down pages and pages of stuff because I used to do that and I, I would like just chuck it in the corner and never read it again. So just just that one, two or even three takeaways, that's like good enough. So could you tell us more about your book, Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing? Sure. Uh, the book's been out for a couple of years now and uh, it's published by Wiley, available at uh, Amazon and all the major outlets. The uh, set out to do is write a book about neuromarketing. And initially I had incorporated a lot of, in my early uh, work on the book, uh, a lot of brain science and brain diagrams and how people make decisions from a neurological standpoint, all this stuff. And I uh, struggled with that for a while. And then finally, I just chucked all that and said, I, I want to write a book that can be uh, read by a business person who operates at any scale, whether they're a small, medium, or large business, uh, and come away with takeaways that they can employ without letting a lot of science get in the way. Uh, every So I wrote this book with 100 short chapters. Uh, every one contains a more or less one idea or actionable technique. Uh, every one is based on scientific research, uh, but I tend not to dwell on the scientific research so much. I do have references. So if somebody says, well, that sounds really interesting. I want to learn more about it. Uh, they can go back and uh, read the original scientific papers. But uh, I focus on the uh, actual business advice. And by and large, I found that people really appreciate that approach. And I get uh, a lot of good feedback on it. Uh, so that's uh, uh, that's Brainfluence. It's, uh, it was a lot of fun to write. And I'm uh, continuing to collect more info. So probably this year, maybe we'll be learning more about a, a sequel or something else coming along. Awesome. So it's going to be like a sequel, second, second edition. Well, uh, no, probably not a second edition, but uh, some, something a little bit different. Uh, and I think that getting uh, sort of some structured information uh, out about the persuasion slide would be good. So going, going beyond the blog post with a lot of examples and details and so on. Awesome. So I definitely recommend our listeners go and get this book and read it. Uh, it's available in six languages, I understand, or something. Yes, yes. Uh, it's now in, let's see, uh, simplified Chinese, Japanese, Korean, German, Portuguese, and Hungarian, although I've, I've not yet seen uh, the Hungarian version uh, in the flesh yet, uh, and Russian also. Wow, that's really cool. It's, uh, it transcends a lot, of, a lot of cultures. Well, yeah, theoretically, there are a lot of people who can, uh, can read it. Awesome. So where can people find out more about you or get in touch with you? Probably a good starting point would be rogerdooley.com. That's R-O-G-E-R-D-O-O-L-E-Y.com uh, or neurosciencemarketing.com. Uh, and either want to link it to my other stuff, my Forbes blog, my book, and, and other stuff that I'm involved in. And on Twitter, I'm at Roger Dooley. So pretty easy to find. Great, great. So really, I really appreciate your time today. I understand we had like a couple of technical issues, but well, we're done with the episode and... Thank you so much. It was a really great episode. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to the Conversions Podcast. Please leave us a review and rating on iTunes if you enjoy our podcast. We love hearing from you. Connect with us at our website, conversionspodcast.com, and let us know what you think. 